This is now so exploded as scarcely to be remembered, and so monstrous as hardly to be believed. But the parliamentary clauses upon which Mr. Burke builds his political church are of the same nature. The laws of every country must be analogous to some common principle. In England, no parent or master, nor all the authority of Parliament, omnipotent as it's called itself, can bind or control the personal freedom even of an individual beyond the age of twenty-one years. On what ground of right, then, could the Parliament of 1688, or any other Parliament, bind all posterity forever? Those who have quitted the world, and those who are not yet arrived at it, are as remote from each other as the utmost stretch of mortal imagination can conceive. What possible obligation, then, can exist between them? What rule or principle can be laid down that of two non-entities, the one out of existence and the other not in, and who never can meet in this world, the one should control the other to the end of time? In England it said that money can't be taken out of the pockets of the people without their consent. But who authorised, or who could authorise the Parliament of 1688 to control and take away the freedom of posterity, who were not in existence to give or to withhold their consent, and limit and confine their right of acting in certain cases forever? A greater absurdity can't present itself to the understanding of man than what Mr. Burke offers to his readers. He tells them, and he tells the world to come, that a certain body of men who existed a hundred years ago made a law, and that there does not now exist in the nation, nor ever will, nor ever can, a power to alter it. Under how many subtleties or absurdities has the divine right to govern been imposed on the credulity of mankind? Mr. Burke has discovered a new one, and he has shortened his journey to Rome by appealing to the power of this infallible Parliament of former days, and he produces what it has done as of divine authority. For that power must certainly be more than human, which no human power to the end of time can alter. But Mr. Burke has done some service, not to his cause, but to his country, by bringing those clauses into public view. They serve to demonstrate how necessary it is at all times to watch against the attempted encroachment of power, and to prevent its running to excess. It's somewhat extraordinary that the offence for which James II was expelled, that of setting up power by assumption, should be reacted under another shape and form by the Parliament that expelled him. It shows that the rights of man were but imperfectly understood at the Revolution, for certain it is that the right which that Parliament set up by assumption, for by delegation, it had it not, and could not have it, because none could give it, over the persons and freedom of posterity for ever, was of the same tyrannical unfounded kind which James attempted to set up over the Parliament and the nation and for which he was expelled. The only difference is, for in principle they differ not, that the one was an usurper over the living, and the other over the unborn. And as the one has no better authority to stand upon than the other, both of them 
must be equally null and void and of no effect. From what or from whence does Mr. Burke prove the right of any human power to bind posterity forever? He has produced his clauses, but he must produce also his proofs that such a right existed and show how it existed. If it ever existed, it must now exist, for whatever appertains to the nature of man cannot be annihilated by man. It's the nature of man to die, and he will continue to die as long as he continues to be born. But Mr. Burke has set up a sort of political Adam, in whom all posterity are bound forever. He must therefore prove that his Adam possessed such a power or such a right. The weaker any cord is, the less will it bear to be stretched, 